0: Let's pray. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we do praise you all the day long. We thank you for your word. We pray for the Holy Spirit to both convict us and comfort us in your word, all the while pointing us to Christ Jesus, our Lord and Savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to make you aware of something. I became aware of it um, a number of months ago and found out it's this kind of thing among a number of churches. It's called the 90-Day Tithing Challenge. And uh, there's some variation in how people, churches put it out there, but it pretty much goes like this. Countless people experience God's blessing when they tithe, but often the first step is the hardest one to take. That's why we created the 3-Month 90-Day Tithe Challenge, Put God first in your finances for 90 days, and if you do not experience His faithfulness, we will refund 100% of your tithe. You're laughing. This is a thing among churches, a number of churches. By the way, some churches even add uh, a contract with terms and conditions. Oh, but wait, there's more. It's like an infomercial. I understand that the challenge period is for three months in duration. I understand that my household qualifies for participation because we have not been tithing at least a full 10% of our income. I understand that when contributing to this church, my tithe must be given by personal check, online giving, mobile app, online bill pay through my bank, or cash in an envelope so that my tithe can be properly accounted for and credited to me. I understand that I cannot seek a refund prior to the end of the challenge period, and I cannot seek a refund for any contributions made prior to the challenge contribution. I understand a refund request must be put in writing and received by the financial administrator in the church office within 30 days of the end of the challenge period. Does that pass the smell test for you? It doesn't for me. Now, You might kind of intuitively know that this is wrong, but why is it wrong? Why is this wrong? It's because the whole motivation for this type of challenge is not about the glory of God. It is about the selfishness of mankind is wrong from the very beginning because this makes God into simply like an ATM machine. If I put in a certain amount of tithes, I will get all of these blessings back, and it becomes a transactional sort of relationship that you have with God. What if you tithe and you don't get any, you don't see any physical monetary fruits of your tithe? Well, then that must say something about God, or that must say something about your faith, For whatever reason, it is wrong from the very beginning, and you must twist Scripture to have this sort of tithing program. Here's another aspect why this is fundamentally wrong, and I showed this to you last week, if you are here last week. I showed you that the gospel is that narrow road, and on one side or the other you fall into legalism, trying to have good works be the law, and your salvation then comes through the law, or easy believism. So which side do you think the 90-day tithing challenge falls on? It's definitely legalism. It's definitely legalism because I do something for you, you do something for me, and that's the relationship I have with God. Quid pro quo. (laughs) I was going to avoid that one, but yes, that's what it is. But it is strictly legalism. And a lot of churches do this because legalism is much easier. But you could also make a case that it's also easy believism because, hey, if I just put in some money, I don't have to do anything else. And that's my faith. I just put money in. What is missing? What's missing from this 90 day tithing challenge? It's right in the middle of the picture it's the gospel. The gospel is totally missing from this picture. The gospel. Look, we are going to conclude this whole series. What does it mean to be a Christian? And we started with the gospel. We're going to end with the gospel. We've kept our finger on the gospel throughout the entire series because it is what God has done for us in Christ Jesus, what God has done for us. And through Christ Jesus and the gospel, we are born again and we have a new life. And that new life makes us and gives us a new identity. We become citizens of heaven and we are to have a living faith. And because of this living faith, we have a generosity in giving. That's how it all works. We always go back to the gospel. So here's our roadmap for this morning. It is, we are to have a generosity of heart unto the Lord, excelling in grace because of the grace of Christ Jesus. It's pretty simple, actually. We are to have a generous, generosity of heart unto the Lord, excelling in grace because of the grace of Christ Jesus. So let's go to the first one here, generosity of heart unto the Lord. Start with our reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 8. begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. So here's the situation. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth, the Corinthians, the church in Corinth. And it's his second letter. And he's covered a number of topics. And now he very tactfully, pastorally comes and to remind them about the contribution for the church in Jerusalem. Now, the church in Jerusalem, the brothers and sisters in Christ there were very poor. It was abject poverty. To be a Christian in Jerusalem was very, very difficult. But notice what Paul does not do. Nowhere in his appeal to the Corinthians does he bring in the law. He does not bring in a command that you must tithe 10%. Now, he could have. There is actually, if you go back to the Old Testament, is replete with commands regarding tithing. Let's just refresh ourselves from everybody's favorite book of the Bible, Leviticus. I know. Every (laughs) Every tithe of the land, whether of the seed of the land or the fruit of the trees, Is the Lord's. It is holy to the Lord. If a man wishes to redeem some of his tithe, he shall add a fifth to it. And every tithe of the herds and flocks, every tenth animal of all that pass under the herdsman's staff shall be holy unto the Lord. One shall not differentiate between good and bad, neither shall he make a substitute for it. And if he does substitute for it, then both it and the substitute shall be holy it shall not be redeemed. So God has given commands for the Israelites to tithe. Tithe simply means 10 or 10% here. And there were numerous tithes, one of the tithes being to the tribe of Levi or the Levites. It was from the Levites that you had the priests. Now the priests were there to do the Lord's work. They were the ones who were maintaining the relationship between God and and his people. And that is the only work they were to do. They were not to have other work amongst the Israelites. That was the holy work. And thus, the Israelites were to tithe and to give that 10% to the Levites so it would sustain them. But not only was there a tithe to the Levites, there were other tithes as well. As a matter of fact, there was a tithe for general offerings. There were tithes for festivals, for feasts. As a matter of fact, one person kind of counted it up and calculated it, that it wasn't just 10%. If you add it all up, it was more like 23 to 25% tithes that, were the, that the Israelites were supposed to do. Now, if you think tithing at 10% is hard and a burden, well, what about 23 or 25%? Try that. How about if a church said, yes, it's the 90-day challenge, 25%. Think that would go over? It wouldn't, would it? Because we often see something like that as a taxation, something imposed on you. And when you start to see your offering as a taxation, you forget about that it's first about your relationship with the Lord and it simply becomes a burden. When you are outside of your relationship with God, no matter what God asks, it's a burden. And when it becomes a burden, people harden their their hearts and stop doing or stop giving. Look, when a church just becomes an organization to which you give money, it's simply a taxation, and people stop giving, period. Do you know what the average evangelical gives to the church, to the saints, to the work of the mission? On the low end, it's about 1.5%. On the high end, about 3%. Because... We have made the church into an organization that has to be supported rather than doing the work of the gospel. And when it becomes just something like that, your offering is a dead faith. Just like last week we talked about works, uh, faith without works is dead. You could say it this way giving by the law alone is a dead faith. Now, the law is easier. The law is easier to do. Give 10%. But that can simply be a dead faith. So the question in all of this is really, where's your heart? Where is your heart? Came across a story, a chaplain by the name of Peter Marshall. He was the chaplain to the U.S. Senate in the 1940s. So a man approached him and said, I have a problem. I've been tithing for some time. It wasn't too bad when I first started out. I was making twenty thousand a year, and I could give. For, I could afford to give two thousand a, uh, a year for that. Now, by the way, twenty thousand a year in 1948 was rich. The average median household was about thirty-two hundred in 1948. So this guy was making twenty thousand. He was already rich. He said, "Well, two thousand was fine." But listen, it goes on. He said, but you see, Peter, I'm now making $500,000 a year, and there's no way I can afford to tithe $50,000. When Peter Marshall had thought about it, he said, yes, sir, I think you do have a problem, and I think what we ought to do is pray. Would that be okay? And the man said, sure, yeah, that'd be fine. So Dr. Marshall prayed. He said, dear Lord, this man has a problem. I pray that you can help him. Lord, I pray that you reduce his salary back to the place where he can afford to tithe. See, where's your heart in all of this, right? Look, for some people, you need that 10% because it keeps you on the straight and narrow and keeps your heart It keeps poking at your heart to say, where is your heart? For some people, 10% would be a huge burden, and you couldn't do that at all. And for some people, 10% is a drop in the bucket. But the point is not the percentage. Look, in the Bible, the tithe is never the end goal. It is the acknowledgement that everything you have is unto the Lord And the first fruits of your labor are an an acknowledgement of who he is and the work that is being done through his people. You give because of your relationship to God, period. That is why in the New Testament, you never find the tithe repeated as a commandment. You never find it repeated as a commandment. Rather, the focus is on the generosity of your heart to the Lord. Now that we've laid some groundwork, let's go back to the letter to the Corinthians. We want you to know, brothers, so listen to, listen to it now afresh. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord, and then by the will of God to us. So in his letters, Paul often use, uses the phrase, the grace of God. Now taken in context here, it is not about salvation, it is about uh, the grace of God is the willingness to give generously to those in need. As one commentator put it this way, I liked it. Grace is God's gift that makes participation in the collection possible and real. Now, the churches in Macedonia, there were three of them. There was the church at Philippi, from which we get Paul's letter to the Philippians. Philippi, Philippians. There is the church in Thessalonica, from which we get the letters, the church to the Thessalonians. And there's also another church, the church of Berea. We don't have a letter to that, but they would be the Bereans. Now, these churches did not have much to begin with. In fact, there was a severe test of affliction. You can understand persecution. We've talked about that. To be a Jew, uh, to, to be a Christian in those areas... You were persecuted either by the Jews or by the pagans or by the Roman government. And this church, these churches were in abject poverty. The word that Paul uses to describe their poverty is one that is of the greatest depth. Think of the greatest depth of the ocean. They were at the bottom. That is their abject poverty. But. He also says these churches are not beaten down. As a matter of fact, there is great joy in the church, and from their poverty came a wealth of generosity. So in this regard, we should not think about the wealth of generosity simply in relationship to money, but in the riches given to them in Christ Jesus and his work of redemption. That's why Paul talks about that they can rejoice even when they are beaten down, they still rejoice. This is the wealth of generosity that we're talking about. You know this. You know people who have that wealth of generosity. If you were here last fall, we had uh, about 10 men come from Arizona Adult and Teen Challenge. If you were here, you remember that? Now, these were men who had, because of a variety of things... They had gone into drugs. They had been in gangs. They had done awful things. But by the grace of God, they were put in this program. And they came to know Christ Jesus. And they stood there, and some of them gave their testimony. And I know you were moved by it. Though they were poor, they had a wealth of generosity. And it was that wealth of generosity that welled up and flowed over from them unto us. And you and I were actually a beneficiary of their wealth of generosity. This is why Paul writes, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. This is also the story, the gospel story of the poor widow. And he called his disciples to him and said to them, truly, I say to you, this poor widow has put more in than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, but she out of her poverty has put in everything she had, all that she had to live on. This is the wealth of generosity in Christ Jesus that moved the poor widow. And because of this, do you know what the churches in Macedonia did? They begged Paul to give an offering. They said, We want to give an offering. Can you imagine how different that is in modern day churches? So many churches do all this fundraising and they put the pressure and they say, come on, you got to give till it hurts. You cannot give God and you do all that sort of stuff. But they were like, no, we want to give. Could you imagine what it would be like if you came across another Christian after worship on Sunday and and they were like, wow, just effusive. And you said, "Wow, well, how is church? And they were wonderful. And you asked them, Well, was it the music? And they say, well, the the music was good, but that wasn't it. Well, was it the sermon? Oh, the sermon was good, but that wasn't it either. Well, it wasn't the music. what, What was it? It was the offering. I couldn't believe it. I am so overwhelmed by being able to contribute to the gospel and the work of the saints. By your silence, you know that that doesn't happen this is the church in Macedonia. Now, whether you know it or not, you and I have also benefited from the churches in Macedonia. For uh, there, was, there is a church in town, and we were recipients of their grace. So um, I relayed this past July, and I sent out a pastoral letter that unbeknownst to me, one of the churches in town had taken up a collection for another church in town. Wasn't mentioned by name at all. The pastors said, there's another church in town, they stand for the gospel, and they are in need. And so that church, the Macedonian church, took up a collection for us, and it astounded me. And I... I'm still moved by their generosity. All because they have a heart unto the Lord. So in this case, it is sharing material and spiritual blessings is a mark of true, of the true church, and a vivid demonstration Of a living Christianity, sharing material and spiritual blessings as a mark of the true church and a vivid demonstration of a living Christianity. So let's go to excelling in grace. Going back to our text, verse 6 Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. These are some interesting verses that Paul has written here. He's telling the Corinthian church that they have excelled in many different areas. They had excelled with gifts of speech by which they demonstrated their faith, communicating the message of salvation with their mouths. They proclaim spiritual knowledge that they believed in their hearts. And we would understand and appreciate that they are not only to grow, but to excel. They wasn't just a level field here. They excelled in what they did. See, when you take a look at Paul's life and everything he wrote, it was about excelling in the faith, not just sitting back in the faith. Paul would write, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. In 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, his first letter, he writes, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. This is an active, vibrant faith. And you and I are to grow and excel in all of those areas. If you take a look at our mission statement, it's to grow to grow alive, deep, and bold in the love and knowledge of Jesus. There's the gospel that you, by God's grace, are born again, that you are made a new person, you become alive, and as a new person in Christ, you are to grow deep, you are to have roots that just go in the ground and soak up that life-giving water of the gospel message and then filled with the gospel message, it emboldens you to live, a live to have a living faith. And in that living faith, you grow bold so that you can say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. And now Paul says, as you excelled in all of that, excel in the grace of giving. When you grow in God's grace, you grow in giving. So Paul has sent Titus to help them, to remind them, to help them complete the desire that has begun to move it forward. Pastors are called to do the same thing. As a matter of fact, I have preached on giving 85 times since I've been here. Now that might puzzle you. You think, hold on, wait a minute. I've been here. I've listened to him. This is the first message you've given here that's been on giving. Oh, au contraire, mon frere. Every time we have an offering, God is good, all the time. and all the time And then I say, and that's why we give. (laughs) I have actually preached this message since the very first day I came here because it is the gospel message. And we are to grow and excel in that grace. Paul continues on I say this not as a command but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also the desire to do it. So now finish doing it well. So that your readiness in desiring it, desiring it, may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. Notice Paul does not go back to the law. He does not give it as a command. He says, rather, it is rooted in love, in love. Christ Jesus, who in the heavenly realms had as many riches as one could ever imagine. He had all power. Majesty, might, glory, and honor, all praise of all creation was given to him. And yet, for our sake, he became poor. He was born in a stable, in a manger. He was born in the muck of mire of humanity. He lived a life where he had no home. He had no place to rest. He was an itinerant preacher. And finally, he was stripped, beaten, spat upon, crucified. The death of a thief became as poor as poor could be so that you, so that you So that you may be clothed with robes of righteousness, that you may receive your crown of eternal life with Him. This and this alone is our wealth of riches. You know, there are a lot of messages that one can give about money and about giving. And it's a difficult subject because our sinful nature always wants to take it and somehow make it into the law and into selfishness. And we want to forget the grace and mercy and love of Jesus Christ. We want to fall off on one side of legalism or easy believism. But it's the gospel and the gospel alone that gives us life, that gives us breath, that gives us all of our riches. So I have three questions for you today. The first is, where is your heart in relationship to the gospel? Where is your heart in relationship to the giving of the saints for the sake of the gospel? And this third question, I pondered quite a bit. Should I put it down or not? But I thought I must. What actions will you take in your giving? Some of you might hear this as a gotcha. And if you do, I would encourage you to go back and listen to the whole sermon again. I would encourage you to focus on the first two questions and really focus on them, not mildly, but earnestly. Take 15, 20 minutes a day. Ponder anew who God is and what he has done for you in Christ Jesus. And then after you have wrestled with that and it has worked on your heart, go to the third question. God is good. And all the time. God is good. Amen. We hope that you've been blessed by this message. If you have any questions or you would like to grow deeper in your faith, please visit our website at joyccc.com. Again, that's joyccc.com.